Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. And today I am joined by um, Katya Leventova and Allison Stoninger to discuss their new book, Gender in the Political Science Classroom. This book was published by Indiana University Press and is a fascinating edited volume that discusses the role and understanding of teaching about power in the classroom and how that intersects with gender in a variety of ways. But I'm going to let I'm going to let Katya and Allison tell us a little bit about that. So I'd like to welcome Katya and Allison to the podcast this morning, and I'm going to ask them each to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this fascinating project. Well, thank you, Lily. This is Katya. Um, I have been teaching at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay for about twelve years. I teach political science classes, mostly in comparative and international relations. And I was always fascinated by um, kind of mismatch that I observed uh, on our campus where we had a lot of female students with 65% female campus. But in my classrooms, the gender breakdowns were very much different. Um, So I kind of came into realization about the gendered nature of our discipline through just observing the types of students I was teaching and how they interacted, what they expected of me as an instructor, how I would have different requests from my male colleagues, perhaps. So uh, this is what brought me to this topic. And I started thinking about all the different manifestations in which gender can affect teaching, but also affects learning. I was thinking about how our female students see the classroom, see this interaction between instructors and of different genders and, and students. So this is how I came into this project, and I was very fortunate to uh, have Allison, who is really interested in the issues of gender, period, um, to, to join me for this project. Yeah, and, and I do think the kind of proximate reason I'm on this project is Katya and uh, some time we spent together at Faculty College, which is this amazing three-day retreat for UW instructors to think about their teaching um, collectively. It's having its 50-year anniversary this year, so a, really a long-term faculty development opportunity for UW faculty. Um, but I think my kind of intellectually, I remember being drawn to some of the questions that are in this project in graduate school when I was, uh, I took some classes in women and gender studies kind of on the side uh, to work towards a certificate. And so I'd go to classes in women and gender studies where we were talking about um, intersectionality and really uh, difficult theoretical arguments about what even is gender. And and I was learning for the first time about you know, experiences of trans students and kind of all of these uh, really important research topics. And then I would go to a political science class and it was as if that whole conversation wasn't happening or at least not happening in the same room. And I would you know, go to a research methods class where uh, you know, sex was treated as a obvious binary variable that we could, we could uh, draw a lot of conclusions from. Or I would even go to a political theory class and well, 
you know, there might be some engagement with questions of, you know, who belongs in the canon or some, you know, feminist critiques of political theory. Some of the most exciting feminist philosophy or feminist theory wasn't really making its way um, into at least the program that, you know, that I was in. Um, so I think I've been interested in kind of questions of why are there uh, kind of stricter disciplinary boundaries than maybe there, there ought to be between political science and women and gender studies or some of the questions there. I think I've been interested in that for a while. And when Katya said, hey, I have this project and my, um, you know, I've, I've lost my co-editor, would you think about it? Uh, it was really quite exciting. Um, and it sounds it like it came together in a kind of auspicious way in that regard as well, um, that you both also happen to be at the, at the campus together having some of these conversations. Um, but I wanted to ask you about, you know, pulling this book together. This is an edited volume with a variety of really interesting chapters that explore this question. And it's not just about teaching, right? It's, it's really a bigger sort of conversation, um, in thinking about how we instruct about power, um, and where does power and gender, where do power and gender intersect? Can can each of you or both of you speak a little bit to that topic? Well, maybe I will start and then also can um, continue from your angle. I think you're very right. It's not just about teaching. Um, it's also about our discipline's responsibility to perhaps examine those powerful relationships. Uh, relationships of, of um, gender authority, who is expected to do what, but that also is about more than even our own experiences at UWGB. It's about how we even teach political science, period, in graduate school, for example, who is entrusted to be um, the quantitative and or qualitative researcher, how we even perpetuate some of those bigger problems and bigger issues as a discipline. Because again, we talk about politics, and politics is very explicitly gendered, but our political science discipline also is extremely gendered as well. So the book is the compilation of different investigations into how from textbooks to graduate training to um, who gets promoted for what and what do we expect um, and what do we value. And during the tenure and promotion considerations, how do we teach, who uses what pedagogies, how gender kind of permeates the whole discipline beyond just maybe immediate instruction, immediate classroom? Why do we not have more um, gender discussions in graduate school? I probably am um, a product of very typical political science graduate training in which, you know, I was not aware of those discussions that Alison just brought up. So uh, it was very interesting to uh, talk to our colleagues who all brought different aspects of those relationships, of those kind of thinking about power, thinking about equity, not only in politics, but in political science itself. And I think also, I don't know that we make this intervention explicit in the book, but I think part of what we're also suggesting is that the scholarship of teaching and learning is at its richest when it is thinking at a disciplinary or institutional level, and uh, that questions about what's happening in the classroom and student learning are really important. I think for me, when I started getting really interested in scholarship and teaching and learning was when I started seeing the connections to um, 
bigger questions about how our disciplines distribute power or um, what's happening on our campuses in terms of how we're sharing the labor of whether that's engaging in high impact practices or something else. And I think there's a lot of space for SOTL to even grow in that direction. Um, I think, you know, sometimes it can really narrowly seem like it's trying to quantify student learning, but I think when it asks really expansive questions, I just was reading uh, Nancy Chick's new book, SOTL in Action, that really starts to do this in a playful way. Um, and I think Nancy's kind of a leader in that sense. She's also has Wisconsin, Wisconsin DNA. Uh, and I think that's really exciting. So even though we're definitely thinking about political science, and also thinking about how can the scholarship of teaching and learning ask bigger questions about the conditions under which we're all trying to do this work rather than um, the kind of individual situations that we face in our classroom and, you know, potentially build solidarities around those shared conditions. And I think that's been particularly important in Wisconsin. And there's a handful of folks in our book who are Wisconsin, UW, and not um, uh, teachers who have experienced a lot of austerity and a lot of challenges to their expertise in the classroom. And so this book kind of helped us um, build sort of small, small communities around our shared interest in transforming our classrooms, but also transforming the conditions in which we're trying to, to teach and do good work. And I, I want to take you through, you know, some of the chapters in the book and let you talk about what some of your authors um, discussed and explored. But um, my my sort of big itching question is to ask each of you which chapters, as you were reading them, um, and you know you sort of recruited the authors and and planned the book, which chapters surprised you in terms of what they found and what they discussed? Uh, maybe I will start, and then Alison will uh, continue. For me, the chapter about the service learning and those very high-impact practices that we assume to be extremely beneficial and um, perhaps mitigating some of the gender impacts empowering women, um, it turns out that it's not necessarily the case. And uh, all this highly regarded uh, pedagogical and um, teaching techniques might also mask a lot of gendered uh, stereotyping and um, maybe even perpetuating some of this, unless we are very mindful and, and are very intentional in creating truly equitable, very um, intentional, very mindful experiences for our students just by the sheer um, proclamation that service learning is the panacea for everything or study abroad is a panacea, we might be missing bigger points that they themselves might be perpetuating very gendered ideas about who is serving whom and how this kind of um, client uh, service learning relationships work and sometimes are very, um, very much perpetuating the gendered expectations. So that the, 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 the broad issue around service learning, which, as you note, is something that is, is very popular, particularly in social sciences, political science, sociology, and so forth, is actually perpetuating some of the gender dynamics and embedded sort of gender disparities that we're also trying to teach about and possibly rectify, is that correct? Exactly, yes. And so unless we examine those practices from the gender perspective, we might be missing the point. The same goes probably for study abroad, which is not discussed in our chapter, but I can very easily imagine very similar arguments being made again about study abroad. 
And Allison, is there a particular chapter or particular sort of information or analysis that you were surprised by as the chapters were coming in and you were reading through them? Well, I think uh, something we very quickly were interested in engaging and became kind of a leap of teeth for the entire book was the idea of gender mainstreaming, kind of how do we think about this idea that has such currency in the world of international development and and um, policy, and how does it kind of, and has been used to think about gender and political science kind of most famously in this 1991 APSA report. So I was really interested in, in folks who kind of engage with that and, and learning about that from the um, perspective outside of the U.S. in the chapter on New Zealand. Uh, I was really interested in the chapter on uh, methodological diversity, because I feel like one thing you always wonder about when you're in graduate school is are the choices people are making about what to study uh, shaped by their identities in important ways. And so it was, it was fascinating to kind of engage with that. But I think for me, the, the chapter that I returned to and that I used some, and I've also seen here present on this, was um, Dr. Valerie Barsky's chapter on embodied learning and embodied pedagogy. And I've um, seen her present this work, which maybe makes it even more um, impressive. We really wanted to have images in the book and we just couldn't make it work. Um, which was such a bummer, but uh, I think the importance of embodiment for feminist pedagogy and for making those links that we wanted to make between social and political science um, and uh, or social science, I guess, in this case, and uh, the classroom would really, really comes, comes together in thinking about embodied learning and thinking about embodied learning, engaging with really traumatic historical moments. So she's thinking about experiences in Japan of, of genocide and kind of how can students, including white students, engage with that and kind of struggling with what that means and how embodiment can can get you to a place um, with learning that you that you might struggle with with otherwise. So that that chapter really, for me, kind of exemplified the kind of things we were we were hoping uh, that people would explore in this volume. Um, that's really interesting. I I found all the chapters fascinating and and having you know sort of read it as as a whole I really was intrigued by the sort of different dimensions to consider as we think about gender and political science in the classroom and as a discipline. Um, so if it's okay with the two of you, I wanted to sort of ask you, you know, sort of you have two sections, part one and part two, the national in, and institutional trends are part one and classroom evidence and solutions are part two. If you can talk a little bit about, you know, what's in each section and how the book is sort of composed. Sure. I, I can say broadly that uh, we were hoping to kind of think at a, as it says, national and institutional level um, first as a way of kind of setting up the sort of more traditional social level investigations. I think, uh, you know, in, in the book, most of the, the chapters in either section can make gestures to the other ones in terms of the types of sort of work that might come out of this kind of institutional thinking or the type of institutional change that might be required by this sort of um, sort of work. But we were, at the beginning, you know, we had this kind of uh, uh, piece that's thinking about the theories behind arguments about gender mainstreaming that kicks everything off and kind of really trying to set the stage. Uh, then we have the piece that's uh, looking at what kind of methods do different dissertations employ. And, and for me, it's thinking... It's most interesting because it thinks about subfield as well as gender and other demographic factors. 
which as a political theorist is always fascinating to me, both in terms of how political theorists conceptualize their own <laughs> methods or not, uh, and then kind of how those breakdowns fit into other uh, subfields. I feel like subfields are one of the things about political science that is most difficult to explain to folks outside of our discipline, because there can be such walls between them and such uh, differences in the kind of methods that we use and the types of knowing that we think are valuable. And I feel like this chapter could give to somebody who doesn't know political science very well, and they would get a sense of some of our divisions and maybe even squabbles. Um, and then uh, Danny thinks about uh, textbooks next. So it's really, he's trying to do kind of descriptive work to say what's happening in our textbooks and how does that connect? And if you think about how many students will engage with political science only in their introductory American government or global politics or you know, intro to political science classroom where a textbook is more likely to be uh, what you're using, that uh, aspect of representation uh, could really matter. At the same time, I think he also raises some questions about how much uh, it matters or what should we do necessarily in response to the broader gendered political world where we uh, still see you know, a lot of equities and inequities in representation. Uh, and then we have uh, Jennifer Curtin who talks about uh, New Zealand and is thinking about the evolution of the discipline there and really offering a counter narrative that, that while still illuminates some room for growth, I think suggests that there's been integration in New Zealand of, of some of these gender concepts in a really powerful way and that, that some of the pipeline issues that plague us here may look different there uh, in a better way. Um, and then Katya finishes off this section with thinking about how do students respond to gender and questions um, having to do with advising, but also also in the classroom and kind of setting out a kind of broad um, movie, transitioning us to the classroom by um, some of her survey work. You want to talk about the second half? Yes. Um, so in the second half, we uh, zoom in particular maybe types of classes, as I mentioned, like service learning, for example. And um, this chapter is by the sociologist. But clearly, service learning um, is, is very, very popular. We, as a discipline, I think, moving towards this high-impact practices. So I think it's very timely for us to, to think about what type of service learning would work in maybe rectifying some of the existing inequities that exist in politics and political science classroom or in any kind of cognate social science disciplines. Um, we also look at um, the gender issues as they affect uh, classroom participation. Do women participate less or more in the classroom? This is the chapter by um, Sarah Winfrey and Michelle Potts. Um, and they look at the particular type of political participation in the classroom itself and kind of look um, into um, that aspect of it. I also wanted to um, promote Allison's chapter because that was very um, revelatory to me because um, Allison actually looks at um, applying SOTL to study a political science classroom, but she moves away from maybe um, having this anonymous survey type data and actually looking at the students identities which SOTL sometimes overlooks. So she looks at um, maybe ways of improving SOTL and moving it in a very different 
direction. And then, of course, the wonderful um, chapter by Valerie Barsky, which moves us towards pedagogical solutions and actually um, argues for not just mainstreaming gender, but um, having a gender forward movement in which we will actually look at uh, feminist pedagogies as probably better pedagogies that exist especially for some of the subjects that we teach, um, historical subjects of trauma and intense suffering. And, um, so she's looking at um, embodied learning and um, teaching and uh, moves us into kind of very positive way of thinking about gender that um, signifies very often the, the very best in teaching, especially about very difficult subjects. And and you you conclude the book with you know the the chapter, gender forward, um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that concluding chapter, and and to some degree some of the questions that you lay out at the beginning of the book, with regard to sort of understanding and thinking about how how we teach and how we understand discussions of power. Um, and authority, um, particularly from our positions as as teachers, which is a is is a position of power also within the classroom, and and how you conclude the book with you know responses to some of those questions and those inquiries. Yes, I think we were both grappling um, with striking a balance between kind of identifying the problems, but also chartering some of the solutions. And the term gender forward actually was coined by Valerie Barsky, who um, is again moving away maybe from lamenting, well, you know, we have those gender dynamics, they are uh, troubling, and um, those kind of gender problems start in undergraduate education with our textbooks, they kind of persist through graduate training because uh, people select uh, research questions based on uh, different methodologies to which they were exposed, etc. So this final chapter is our... Um, attempt to not necessarily kind of throw our hands in the air and say, well, you know, we identify so many problems, our discipline, just like the field that we study is very gendered, it's very entrenched. So what can we think about? How can we maybe forge some alliances and um, move forward um, in teaching and maybe also in cooperating and collaborating with other social science disciplines, with SOTL, with women and gender studies. So we didn't want to end our book on kind of this resigned, pessimistic note. We wanted to say that there is a way forward and um, we can do it not only as a discipline, but as a discipline in collaboration with, with other allies, which already exist. And yeah, I think as is maybe evident by the, the struggle to find a different framing, you know, one of the puzzles that I was saying kind of for me, uh, pulled me into this work was, okay, we had this call for gender mainstreaming in the early 90s, probably before, uh, and that seems to have been insufficient, at least in some ways. Uh, at the same time, you know, uh, disciplinary boundaries are policed for all sorts of reasons, some good and some bad, and it's not as if political science is going to kind of magically become women and gender studies or what we want it to, right? So what is a, a way of thinking about what we want people to do that kind of goes beyond gender mainstreaming, which seems to have kind of diluted, at least in some ways, coverage of gender to being kind of one thing among 
others. Um, sort of that pushes us closer to that collaboration that Katya is talking about with our colleagues in women and gender studies and kind of drawing on some of their methods and treating as valid types of methodologies that maybe haven't been as valued in political science, at least in some um, subfields. Um, you know, kind of what's the in-between? And so the gender forward framing um, we thought was really nice. And I think there's another way that we're thinking about this and that kind of the engaging in a thought experiment, but also a very real aspirational thought experiment of what if gender, the very the kind of concept of gender or social construction of gender, if you want to think about that in that way, um, or gender is embodied in, uh, in its whole rich intersectional engagement with other types of difference, uh, became something without which you couldn't understand political science as a discipline. One of those threshold concepts that you need in order to enter the discipline, I think probably you know, power, which you, you've mentioned several times, is the kind of closest thing if, um, if we do have threshold concepts that kind of pulls in ideas of gender. I do think that, you know, that you can make a pretty strong case that, uh, let's say you are in American politics and you want to understand uh, the American political world. You know, certainly it seems to me that without a robust notion of, of gender that you would have difficulty understanding some of the dynamics. I mean, I feel like Certainly, I have not that I fully understand the Democratic primary <laughs> right now, but I think without some tools for thinking about about gender um, and race and other things, it, it would be difficult. So, so part of our pitch with the gender forward is that um, it, is that it, it it might let people do something more than uh, more than than mainstreaming um, and more than really important classes, adding really important classes like women in politics or feminist theory, you know, also having having uh, gender be really important in classes like Congress and constitutional law and these kind of central classes in our discipline. And, and so in that regard, the question of gender becomes the, oh, in a lot of ways, a thread and, and driving consideration in thinking about aspects of political science, the discipline, and also how we teach it. Like it should be included, as you say, in a Congress class, it should be included in a con law class or in a comparative democracies class. Yeah. And I would say included not only in content, of course, but in the way that we think about how are we structuring the class, you know, what kind of assessments are we using? What kind of ways of engaging in the classroom are students going to be asked to do? How are we going to be explicit with them about why we're asking them to do particular things? And how are we going to think about possible disparate impacts on, you know, historically marginalized students, on on students who are, um, you know, in particular situations likely to be disadvantaged, uh, whether that's thinking really hard about how you're including your trans students, if you're going to do something that might um, bring up issues of trauma around gender or thinking really hard about which ways of, you know, if we know a lot about who's likely to speak up in particular types of class discussions, you know, how do you reframe them? So yet making gender part of how the class is designed, the content of the class, and then also part of the types of examples of good research that, um, that you provide for students as they become more professionalized. So both the examples in terms of who's doing the research uh, which is kind of the content question, but also the kind of questions that that people are are asking um, that do draw on these kind of thicker notions of gender. Mm-hmm. And Katja, would you like to add more? 
Yes, I was uh, particularly thinking about uh, Danny Miller's chapter about um, textbook representation of gender. I think, you know, incorporating gender also allows us to ask questions of why not? Like, why are we not seeing more women um, in, in those textbooks? Not that we want to necessarily change the world tomorrow, but I think it will go a long way to maybe bringing, um, again, not necessarily the what or why questions, but why not questions as well. And I think it's um, an important question to, to ask as well. And, and I also, you know, found the chapter that you included on, you know, sort of graduate programs, graduate work, dissertations, um, methodological diversity to be fascinating from my own perspective, um, but also to think about the discipline as it continues to grow and evolve mm -hmm. in terms, as you note, who's asking which questions mm -hmm. and how are they analyzing and then, you know, finding their answers, who's publishing those answers, um, and then ultimately where are they also potentially becoming teachers and scholars? Absolutely. And I was curious about how you came about to include that chapter. It wouldn't necessarily be obvious, but in in seeing it and reading it, it became obvious to me. Was that part of the original proposal or was that something that you had an aha moment? Um, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by, by that particular chapter. That chapter um, actually really came about a little bit later. It wasn't part of the original plan, but we had a call for proposals and um, Laura and... Um, Rina, um, who uh, co-authored this fascinating paper that they presented at APSA, I believe, um, responded very quickly, and we looked at their proposal, and we, we had this aha moment, you know, mm -hmm. to examine how we are trained in graduate school beyond just, you know, are we exposed to women and gender studies? You know, I think we need to look at the methodology question very, very carefully, and that chapter was extremely um, fitting. To, to include in this first um, kind of contextual part of our book. Yeah, and I think when we were, you know, we had a set of, I think they needed more than we ended up including. I would say we, we started with more chapters that would really have fit into the second section that we're thinking particularly about the classroom, which is, is exciting. Um, and a few of them, you know, I hope they come out in some venue eventually. Uh, but when we did this call for proposals, we did it in part because we felt that so many of the chapters were identifying bigger institutional problems that were shaping their classroom challenges. So bigger institutional problems about you know, how they were trained or bigger institutional problems in terms of mentorship, uh, in terms of um, representation in a broad sense, or in terms of um, you know, how they're being professionalized as in terms of how they think about research or service or their role as a, as a professor there. And so we, when we pitched the, the small RFP that we did, we were looking for people who could kind of expand. And this was really exciting because it did that in a really concrete way and a way that I found really interesting. As I was saying earlier, it's something I'd always wondered about. And, you know, you do your kind of armchair 
um, imagining of like, oh, well, all Americanists do this and all, um, uh, you know, comparativists do this, but you don't really know. And so I was really fascinated to actually uh, learn a little, a little more concretely about that and to kind of see the ways in which, you know, like uh, I think one of their findings was that um, folks in international relations have the broadest range of methodological uh, openness, I guess, particularly, and, and that gender doesn't matter so much if you're in that subfield. So kind of on one hand, you might want to know what are they doing right? Or you might say, well, if we broke that down and disaggregated it, would there still be you know, very gendered things going on within IR? Are people who are doing security studies um, separate from people doing refugee studies or whatever kind of overly simplified distinction you might draw? So I think it was just really provocative. And I and I, um, I made me actually want to read more. Um, I think it can be hard too to do a study like that that doesn't feel kind of too narcissistic or navel navel gazing. And I think they right. did a nice job of saying like this is why this is why this matters more for than just for political science nerds. Not that we know <laughs> they're an important audience, but you know. <laughs> No, I mean, I agree. And it's, you know, it's oftentimes a conversation one has at a conference with somebody you meet. It's like, oh, where'd you train? And, you know, what did you think about when you were doing your dissertation? And, and you know, you have a little tiny slice of that information, but this is a much broader kind of investigation and analysis into, into all of that, um, which also helps us understand the discipline and how the discipline kind of functions in its creaky ways. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was interesting too. Um, so I wanted I wanted to ask you, Katya, since you started us off talking about how you were a little bit perplexed with regard to the classroom and the students who were in your classroom at um, University of Wisconsin in Green Bay. Um, can you talk a little bit about the chapter that you wrote and what you what you found? Um, in your analysis of who's in the classroom and how they operate? Yes. Um, so what I have done for my chapter, I uh, surveyed our entire student population uh, in political science. So it wasn't necessarily based on any uh, one classroom that uh, you know I or my colleagues experienced. But um, rather it was the survey which had both um, open-ended and closed-ended questions and the gender differences of expectations of students, what, uh, you know, their teachers should do in a classroom, what they should do outside the classroom, actually didn't emerge from the kind of more quantitative analysis, but definitely in their open-ended questions, there was a lot of um, very interesting data about how students perceive um, their female and their male um, instructors very, very differently. The students themselves are very attuned to the differences that, uh, for example, women face as teachers as opposed to men. Um, Students report that female teachers encounter more disciplinary problems. For example, students see it um, very clearly. They also can differentiate the different... um, pedagogies and maybe different types of assignments that um, male and female faculty members employ. So, for example, students expect male um, instructors to be more about multiple choice questions, maybe research papers, and women are expected to do more um, group work and projects, which also then begs the question of labor, clearly, because it's um, much easier to to grade them, um, much less time-consuming to grade multiple choice exams as opposed to projects and um, group work. 
assignments, so which involve a lot of emotional labor on the part of female professors. But, you know, students not only reported kind of those gendered expectations on the classroom, but I think to me the most kind of interesting and probably very consistent with existing scholarship on um, gendered expectations of instructors outside the classroom. That was very, very fascinating. Um, so students expect much more individualized attention from their female instructors, more mentorship, more kind of friendship requests in a sense. You know, students are expected to um, to come to their female advisors or mentors with all kinds of problems, maybe not necessarily related to um, classroom problems. So that was, you know, coming out very, very strongly in the um, qualitative data that um, I collected. So I think, you know, it made it very clear to me that students are very keenly aware of this kind of gendered expectations themselves, which, you know, I wasn't suspecting uh, to find quite as strongly, but I did. And and some of that also tracks along with a lot of the studies with regard to student evaluations um, and the gender bifurcation within student evaluations studies, as well as race race. Um, and issues uh, along those lines in terms of student evaluations and what students expect and anticipate mm-hmm. from their, you know, their different professors in the classroom. Um, Allison, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your chapter um, on the scholarship of teaching and learning in the classroom um, and, and what you found to be the most interesting in terms of that research itself. Sure. Well, I started with, uh, I guess, a kind of traditional SOTO project in the sense that um, I was kind of learning how to do SOTO and kind of adopting the the methods that were prominent in uh, civil journals and in the the folks who were training me. And those methods seem to be, to a great extent, borrowed from or, you know, directly um, drawn on from psychology, um, lots of focus on pre and post tests or trying to use control groups to compare students, Uh, lots of struggles with institutional review boards to get your proposal through and and kind of get them to to, uh, allow you to do what you want to do. I always think it's funny that if you aren't studying your classroom, you can, you know, do whatever horrible things you're going to do to your student. But once you want to publish on it, then you have to justify it. It's a little disturbing. Um, Anyway, the question that I would initially interested in is, you know, I really want my students to be able to think about lots of different types of uh, hierarchies and how they intersect. And I want them to be able to do that in a really rich way. I think a lot of times intersectionality gets used in the opposite way than I think it is intended or the way that it it works in a a richer uh, context in that it gets used often to suggest, well, everyone just has their own unique identity where all their 50 sub-identities intersect and, and everyone is just this completely unique person, uh, rather than as a method that's supposed to help us have a much more nuanced understanding of social phenomenon and, and think about you know, what is, is uh, like, but also dissimilar about particular situatedness of, of, of folks. Uh, and so I was interested in like whether my students, how their understanding intersectionality, how their understanding would change during the semester. And I was also really interested in a debate going on elsewhere that it didn't make it into my chapter, but was framing what I was thinking about, 
which was a debate about whether analogies between race and gender are useful. So there's a, tons of um, political thinkers who at, at various points in time, uh, you know, I was just teaching Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Fred, Frederick Douglass in my American political thought class, and she does a lot of this, who sought to, to draw analogies between two different types of oppression, in this case, race and gender, to make claims, right? So um, Stanton, often with pretty um, you know, disturbing effect, attempts to on one hand say that women are like slaves, um, while also kind of, uh, suggesting that women in, in many ways are better than uh, enslaved Americans. And so I was interested in this conversation that was happening elsewhere about that um, in uh, political philosophy, political theory. And I was interested in, okay, is analogy a useful way for students to learn about this? Uh, or is it actually kind of reinforcing some of the, the potential pitfalls? And I thought in particular, you know, for my students at UW-Green Bay, many of them have a real personal understanding of class inequality. And they have, they and their families have struggled, not all of them, of course, um, have struggled as working class uh, people to access higher education, to um, be prepared for higher education, to deal with the debt that they have once they're here. And so I was curious if, if they get a really strong understanding of class inequality, will they transfer that understanding to think about other types of inequality or other structures of oppression? Um, and so I was interested in uh, figuring out whether those ideas transfer. And then eventually I wanted to think, well, if those ideas transfer, is that good, right? Is this thinking by analogy useful? So I wanted to kind of work back to that conversation in philosophy about thinking by analogy about race and gender. Um, I never quite made it to the second piece because I got really detoured by the ways in which the pre and post test methodology that I had adopted was making it really hard for me to get at some of these questions because it really mattered which of my students were developing which sorts of understanding of um, intersectionality or which of my students were able to think about class or race or gender in a particular way. Um, so to a certain extent, the chapter is kind of me figuring out that uh, I need to do more qualitative SOTA work, uh, which you know kind of makes more sense for me anyway. And and also that I, I argue that not doing some of that more qualitative SOTA work can kind of leave us in an overly, uh, leave us unable to ask some really good questions about inequality because it kind of locks us into a particular kind of neutral liberalism um, and I, I kind of gesture to, to lots of other conversations about that that, that have gone on. Uh, so the chapter is kind of a, it has two folds, two, two sets of things going on. One is about encouraging solo researchers and political scientists who are solo researchers, political scientists who have such a wealth of qualitative research experience to do more of that, especially if they want to ask questions about uh, race or gender or other types of difference, but also suggesting that maybe our broader conversation in the scholarship of teaching and learning is not able to um, pursue some lines of inquiry that it should be pursuing uh, because of the way that it's conceptualized, you know, the gold standard of social research, which tends to be really focused on uh, psychology style research methods that are great for answering some kind of questions, but um, not necessarily ones having to do with, you know, complex identity. And and all of the chapters, I think, are really interesting because they pull on different aspects of not only, as we've talked about, pedagogy, but also understandings of political science disciplinarily and how we think about our discipline, our study, 
and our work as scholars and teachers. This is a very good book in that regard. It, it, it sort of made me keep thinking about myself in the classroom and made me keep thinking about myself as a researcher and how, how do we sort of understand our work, um, particularly with these important questions around gender. Um, so I wanted to ask you, because you've both produced such an excellent edited volume on gender in the political science classroom, what you're each working on now. Um, this is Katya, and I'm, I'm still working on the issues of gender, but now um, I'm doing a collaborative research with some of the other colleagues from UW system, whom I met through uh, Wisconsin Teaching Fellows and Scholars that um, Alison now co-directs, uh, and we are working on uh, investigating how gendered total itself is, and uh, what are the implications of, of that for us as teachers and uh, for administration as well. And um, we have also uncovered um, quite quite a bit of very interesting patterns. And um, this will be the chapter in um, the edited collection itself. So uh, stay tuned. Okay, that sounds great. Allison, are you working on this project as well? No, I'm not, um, but I'm looking forward to <laughs> learning what they find out. Um, I see. Um, I'm trying to think of what work connects to this. I mean, I'm working on a, a bigger, more, I guess, uh, traditional political theory pro project that's about mid-century writings about apocalypse and the end of the world, um, particularly in the fiction of Flannery O'Connor and then in Hannah Arendt's work and some related figures. Uh, Jaspers and Baldwin, and then trying to think about that in its own time, but also as both as a possible impediment or a useful way of thinking for thinking about our own ends, ends of the world um, today with, with climate change or other ways of, of framing, you know, the end of democracy. There's all this apocalyptic language floating around, so I'm trying to think about that. Um, and then I'm working on a this is going to sound like it's in contradiction to this piece, but it's not. But I'm working on a piece that is trying to interrogate the language of equity that has become so prevalent in higher education discourse. I think for me, coming out of a subfield that has argued about equality for so long, I was really fascinated uh, trying to trace the genealogy of when did equity become the framing that was, you know, proper in uh, higher education circles. We probably used it in this in this conversation earlier. So I'm trying to sort of trace that and link it up with conversations, arguments in political theory about equality and difference, which I think had for a long time already been engaging with the type of thinking that equity engages in, you know, that um, meme that people like to share of the people behind the fence is kind of part of what fascinated me. Um, and maybe also partially wanting to defend equality as being able to do things that uh, already do some of the things that people want equity to do. So that's what I'm working on. Um, I promise it's not a, a, a hater piece, even though it sounds like it. But <laughs> I'm interested in that kind of how did we end up, how do we end up in that way and what resources does political theory have for maybe having a better conversation about equality and equity or, you know, whatever these goals are that we're trying to promote with that language. Well, I would like to, in, I would like to invite each of you to come on the new books network again, when your various projects are published by various presses, I hope. Um, and I look forward to further conversations about really fascinating topics that you're both working on. Um, so I wanted to thank you both 
um, Katya and Allison for talking to me today about Gender in the Political Science Classroom, which is a new book, um, 2018, published by Indiana University Press. And I'm sure this book can be purchased at Indiana University Press's website. But is there any brick or mortar store that you would like to shout out that might carry a copy of it? Well, sadly, I was unable to, to find it uh, through Googling, uh, but we are thinking that there is a bookstore in medicine that, that carries it, but unfortunately, we don't know its name. But it That's clearly funny. is available on all the online retailers, on Amazon and um, other pals. <laughs> yes, all, all other online um, retailers. So, um, and obviously from the um, University of Indiana Press. And that's where I will direct people to pick up a copy of it. So, thank you for joining me today to talk about gender in the political science classroom. Thank, thank you so much, Lily. Thank My you. pleasure. <laughs>